Welcome to another episode of the Historical Society of the New York Courts' podcast, where we discuss why legal history matters. I'm Daniel Loud, a rising third-year student at Columbia Law School, a native of Brooklyn, New York. Today is Monday, June 29th, and we're in for what should be a very interesting conversation with the Honorable Robert Smith on his article in the Historical Society's journal, Judicial Notice, about one of the most important jurists in the development of American law, New York's own Chancellor James Kent. But before we get to that, a few quick words about Judge Smith. Robert Smith is head of the appellate practice at Friedman, Kaplan, Seeler, and Edelman in New York City. He served as an associate judge of the New York State Court of Appeals, New York's highest court, from 2004 to 2014. Before serving on the court, Judge Smith practiced law in New York City. He has argued dozens of appeals before the federal and state appellate courts, including two appeals before the United States Supreme Court. Judge Smith graduated with great distinction in 1965 from Stanford University and received his law degree, magna cum laude, in 1968 from Columbia Law School, where he was also editor-in-chief of the Columbia Law Review. He later taught at Columbia from 1980 until 1990 and at the Benjamin N. Cardozo School of Law from 2006 until 2015. Today, we're looking forward to a very interesting conversation about Chancellor Kent, his views on the law and teaching the law, and the effect he's had on American jurisprudence and judging to this day. And with that, I'd love to get started. Judge Smith, thank you so much for speaking today. Thank you for inviting I guess, me. Let's, I guess let's get started with um, you know, hearing a little bit more about you and maybe what interested you in writing about Chancellor Kent. Well, what interested me in writing about Chancellor Kent, I suppose I've got to tell the truth, was a friend asked me, would you please do an article about Chancellor Kent? And I said, sure. That was uh, Justice uh, Helen Friedman, who I believe is, is or was at that time the editor of, uh, or at least had some editorial responsibility for judicial notice. But I liked the idea and it was interesting. I liked learning about things I don't know much about and I knew very little about James Kent uh, when I started. I like reading uh, old uh, decisions and old law. I like history. I'm particularly interested, of course, in the history of judges in the state of New York. And indeed, uh, I probably shouldn't brag, but at, uh, at uh, Columbia Law School, I was among those named as a James Kent scholar. And I managed to uh, attain that without any very clear idea of who he was. <laughs> I, I actually um, was honored to have that this year as well, but it, right. one semester was pass-fail, so I don't know if it counts as much as yours. <laughs> um, it counts. Oh, thank you. No, it was very interesting to read a bit more about him. I personally did not know anything about him either. What I found very interesting, um, and we spoke about a little bit a week or so ago, what inspired him to write the commentaries on American law. Um, if you have any ideas sort of what led him to that, um, it'd be very interesting to talk about. Well... I do not have any specific idea of what prompted him, except that the, the, the sense I have is of, of his personality, is that he was a man, he, he uh, was a powerful intellect and knew it, and liked being a powerful intellect, and loved the law. Uh, he didn't love the practice of law, but he loved the, the, the study and analysis of the law. I would think that he just must have taken this as a, an enormous challenge. Absolutely. Part of at least what I noticed reading through your article was he was definitely very interested in teaching the law and at least making it easier for students to learn. But it also seemed like he 
well, I guess today maybe we would call it, it was a bit elitist, but also had a view that sort of people, not everybody should be able to practice the law. Do you know how he was able to really reconcile those two views? Well, he certainly was an elitist, something very, very out of fashion now, or a more respectable thing to be in those days. He had no use for the idea that ordinary human common sense was all you needed to decide cases. He, uh, indeed, he was sort of appalled at the idea that he might translate his Latin uh, into English. I think his attitude was that anybody who didn't understand Latin uh, was unworthy to read his, uh, his prose. I'm not sure there's that much contradiction because he was not a popularizer. He wrote a book, not just a book, but a, a law, a series of many long books, very imposing treatise. I don't think he was looking for the New York Times bestseller list. I think he wanted to be read by lawyers. I think he would have said that the quality of his readers was more important to him than the quantity. Uh, as a teacher, well, he did teach law. The evidence we have is that he was quite bad at it. In the classroom, he was, I think, the first or one of the first professors of law in an American institution, but he didn't last long because nobody ever showed up for his lectures. He, uh, he did not have the gift of entertaining people from the platform. Sort of what you talked about and, and you mentioned here was he did not want a body of law that was based on common sense. I guess I have a few questions about that. The first one was obviously we're calling him, or I, I've called himself our Chancellor Kent because he was also judge in the courts of equity, which were separate at the time. Did he view the role of common sense differently in equity versus law? Interesting. I'm not sure I know the answer. The idea of equity, I think, was that the common law had become so encrusted with traditional doctrines and forms and even rituals mm -hmm. that it, uh, it, it was getting difficult and slow to render justice. The chancellor was a, a, a very senior official of the, of the crown was empowered to, uh, uh, in, in proper cases, put, put the common law aside and do justice. So you would think that courts of equity would be uh, havens for common sense and the sort of uh, seat of the pants rulings. I think what probably happened is what always happens when these, with these simplifying common sense projects after a century or two, they become encrusted with their own doctrines and their own uh, uh, rituals. And I think I think by the time Chancellor Kent came along, I don't mean this uh, disparagingly, he was a great judge and I'm sure like all great judges, he, he struggled to be fair and to, and, 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 and to get the right result. Uh, nobody, who, uh, nobody who's ever made a reputation as a judge didn't do that. But I don't think, again, I don't think he viewed himself as a uh, as, as imposing uh, good old popular common sense on the, on the common law. I think he uh, was very proud of his learning and thought it was a great asset to him in, uh, in deciding cases. That makes sense. Going off of that more specifically with the common law, of course, it was already almost 700 years old by the time Judge Kent sort of got a crack at it. But my understanding at least learning about the common law and its origins was that when it was first created based off of the common sense principles that had already developed in medieval England at the time. I guess um, that's right. That's, that's why it's called common. Exactly. Both, I never thought of it before, but both names, common law and equity, 
suggests that we're, we're, we're just going to use good old common sense and fairness. Yeah, the common law was also identified for a long time, and I'm, I think probably to some degree still in the Chancellor, in Chancellor Kent's time, with the natural law. Common law, uh, the name suggests that it was received from the traditions of the people, but as it was, but I think there was all, they also thought it was received from God, uh, that those traditions were received from God, and that the common law was essentially a, a, an attempt by human beings to apprehend the natural law. Interesting. Do you think that was why he did not want to change it to match up more with the common sense principles of his time, which had obviously already probably begun to depart from 11th century England? In his time, I've forgotten uh, the year um, Swift against Tyson was decided, but you... Um, uh, you, you, uh, I, I don't know if people still learn that in law school even. Yeah. Um, uh, Swift against Tyson was the case that was overruled at Erie Railroad against Tompkins. And, but for, from whenever it was decided, which I think was the first half of the 19th century, and uh, probably, in, which means probably in Kent's lifetime, and uh, until Erie, until the days of Erie maybe, the premise of that decision and the premise of a lot of early 19th century law was that there was something called the common law that was true and immutable. And the job of a judge was not to make it up, but to find it and to figure out what it was. And in the old cases, you see things like, what is the true rule? What is the true decision in this case? They still use those, that language in England, by the way. And Swift against Tyson, the form that took was that if you were in a federal court on a question, on a state law question, that is what we would think of, I guess everyone would think of as a, as a question of common law, of ordinary common law. This, you know, did this cow trespass into this person's stream? That good old fashioned law. If there was a law question that the highest court of the state had decided, under Swift against Tyson, a federal court in a diversity case applying, uh, faced with the identical question, did not have to follow the highest court of the state. It was entitled to say, no, the highest court was wrong. They didn't, that is not the true rule. That is not the true law. I think what it says in Swift against Tyson is that um, the, the litigants are entitled to an independent opinion. I've wandered a long way from Chancellor Kent, but what I'm trying to answer is the, the atmosphere in which he lived, the world in which he lived, really the idea of bringing the law up to date and fixing the problems and modifying it to suit modern times would have horrified him. As it horrifies some, some judicial conservatives today, of whom I'm to some degree one, there's a great controversy today about the extent to which is the, fu the function of a judge to figure out what's fair and, uh, and, 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 and make the law fit or to figure out what the law is. I suppose that tension is always going to be there and I will bet you that common law judges beginning at 1120 or whenever they began, basically they did it. They did plenty of cheating when they, when they didn't like the result that they were getting. And that's always been true. But I think the intellectual uh, position of Chancellor Kent would have been the common law is immutable and the job of the common law judge is to find the right rule. And I suspect that when he sat in equity, he didn't think all that differently. I think he was still looking for the uh, the right rule. The true law. Okay, that's interesting. Um, by the way, I think from 1L Civil Procedure, 
I think Swift v. Tyson was 1823. Very good. I'm willing to be wrong about that on the internet. Oh, you see, I was, I, I, yeah, I was wondering whether you'd heard of the case, and now you're going to, yeah. I'm glad they still teach it. Exactly. Uh, yeah, they mentioned it as like this was and, what and, we had and, before and, and, Erie. Um, and of course, you know, instead of memorizing what was on the final, I memorized what your Swifty Tyson was. <laughs> okay, but that was, that was, uh, uh, if, it, if it was 1823, that was the year that Chancellor Kent retired from the bench. Really? Okay. Mm -hmm. He was 60 years old and mandatory retirement at 60 was, was the rule then. A related question to that then about what you mentioned about the sort of true law and that was what the common law was perceived as at the time and maybe still to today. So based off of that, I guess might be a little sort of too blunt, but what was the purpose of the commentaries on American law? If it was a body of law that would be the same in England as opposed to the US because it was sort of natural. Yeah, interesting question. Yes, yes. Why, why is there such a thing as American law at all? Even the most uh, devoted believer in natural law principles and finding the law, I suppose, would have to admit that new problems come up, new cases are decided, new problems are confronted. You're supposed to solve them by applying the traditional old principles. But obviously, even someone in the early 19th century would have had to admit there's room for disagreement about how that is done. And the result of that is this huge body of primarily of, of cases, although uh, I don't, the commentaries were not restricted to case law or common law. They, they, he certainly did write about the Constitution and statutes too. And I suppose it would have been admitted by any, any, lawyer, any early 19th century lawyer that, uh, that statutes are allowed to change the law. Yeah. And that, and that uh, the American Constitution was certainly in some sense an innovation. Although, although, although I'm sure also that, uh, that the people thought it was uh, uh, yeah, very much in line with natural law principles. In fact, the, the, the Declaration of Independence is a, is a natural law manifesto. Where we hold these truths to be self-evident. Exactly. Chancellor Kent, when he was writing the commentaries, did he make a distinction among the laws of the different states? And well, I guess maybe the question of like general federal common law hadn't been decided yet, but did he just view it as one body of American law or was it the sort of distinct set of, it wasn't 50 jurisdictions then, but you know. There, again, that's an interesting question. I could do a better, I could answer better if I had uh, spent more time in the commentaries. Uh, and with the little time I did spend, I, I do have the impression that he was trying to articulate something called American law. Okay. He, I do not think there was likely to be a chapter on this is the law of Massachusetts, this is the law of Wisconsin. Okay. Sort of wanted to shift from the commentaries a little bit and more sort of move over to what he did for judging and sort of how he changed, you know, the process and what it meant to be a judge. Um, you talked a little bit in your article on Judicial Notice about how he was the first judge to write and publish opinions. What came before Chancellor Kent? I mean, how, do, how, did, how did courts even exist without written opinions? It's a good question. Okay. Again, written opinions certainly were known in England before, uh, uh, before the Chancellor Kent came along. 
uh, I've read 18th century and 17th century, and I guess even 16th century opinions uh, of English courts. I think that the, the answer to your question may be that beginning from the revolution, the American judges in the American states uh, were very much, the, uh, their law was very much the offspring of English law. Indeed, it was, uh, the English law was received into the colonies according to the, to the doctrine, the explanation of how, how we got our law. The way you knew what the law was, was by reading English cases. Obviously, written opinions weren't unknown uh, before Kent. Uh, Marbury against Madison was written. Uh, yeah. uh, before, uh, so the United States Supreme Court was obviously writing and publishing opinions. Okay. But I gather from what I know that state courts uh, had not developed that practice. Uh, New York clearly had not. And that meant that for, if you're looking for precedent, you were very dependent on what you could find in books and treatises where Blackstone was obviously hugely important. The first thing you would do if you had a question was take out Blackstone and see what the answer was. Yeah. And my impression of, of what it meant to, to read law or to, be, to study to become a lawyer in those days when there were no law schools was you sat down and turned the pages of Blackstone from beginning to end. And I, and I guess, I think Kent wanted to be, when he came to write the commentaries, I think he wanted to be the American Blackstone, and more or less is or was. Yeah, absolutely. So do you think that was why he wanted to teach at Columbia and be one of the first law professors in an American university? I don't have that impression. I think, I, to me, if I'm not sure he even wanted to teach. I don't know this, but I would bet that he, what he wanted was to do something for a living other than practicing law, which he admitted that he hated. Okay, that makes sense. Right. But I think he was one of those people who was uh, absolutely wonderfully suited for being a judge, even though he was not suited for the other things that lawyers do, like um, uh, practicing or, uh, or teaching. There, you know, some, of the, some of the great judges were also uh, marvelous practicing lawyers. Cardozo was a leader of the, of the bar before he became a judge. But not, not Chancellor, and there, there, I think there are probably other examples of people who weren't, certainly not Chancellor Kent. As a judge, though, obviously being the fir- one of the first in the state courts to write and publish opinions, was probably setting a very important precedent for judges that came after him, which you sort of touched on in your article. And I was just wondering, of course, as a, as a student who still reads lots of opinions, what elements of... Chancellor Kent's writing was carried over even to today or by judges after him and what has changed in the almost two centuries since then? It's easier to see, a lot easier to see the differences than the similarities when you just sit down and read his opinions. When you read his opinions, they don't seem all that different from other 19th century opinions. Uh, maybe, Maybe a bit more erudite, a little more Latin, but they're discursive. The author has all the time in the world and assumes the reader of his opinion has all the time in the world. The author is very learned and not afraid to show off his learning, kind of likes it. As I've suggested, there's a dogmatic quality to them. This is the true rule. There's less, although I wouldn't say there's none, of this, yeah, this is obviously the fair and right thing to do. But there is some of that. There is some. And then the resemblance is not so much, it's not so much that it's a resemblance, it's the tradition he started 
of having written opinions that people could consult and read and rely on is still the way we do it. It's the fact that opinions yeah, it's, it's, it's so basic, you know, it's, it, to us it's as basic as breathing. People seem so different from each other that you don't notice how very, very similar they are. I don't know if I should thank him or be upset that he started the practice of publishing and writing opinions. I think compared to reading Blackstone, it sounds yeah, like yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, reading Blackstone is okay to me. The idea of trying to learn law by reading reading Black well, you, of course, I'm yeah. You, you and I are prisoners of our time, the way uh, uh, you know, Blackstone and Kent were prisoners of theirs. But the idea that you could really understand legal issues without reading a case seems almost incomprehensible to me. Absolutely, yeah. That, that's part of why I wanted to ask that question. I just couldn't understand what was done before. They still do it, I guess, in civil law countries. I mean, in theory, I've never understood this, but in theory, if you're in France or Italy or wherever, up, there's no such thing as precedent. You, yeah. you, you, you have a question, you look at a treatise. That can't be 100% true. I have a feeling it's not 100% true. That's the theory. And I, I've never quite understood how it works. No, I, I've been the same way. It's always seems to me like you sort of, I don't know, you end up at common law after a long enough time. But that could be ignorant. If we, if we have listeners in Europe or in civil law countries or in Louisiana, maybe we're wrong. I did want to ask a little bit about civil law because you did mention Unfortunately, I did not write down the name of the case. I think it was a caveat emptor. Satius v. Woods. Exactly. Satius um, spelled like the tennis player, S-E-I-X-A-S. In fact, I, that's how the tennis player pronounced it. I have no idea how the plaintiff in, in Satius v. Woods pronounced it. That was a case where he um, compared the established rule, I guess, of the common law. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that was a common law case uh, in, 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 uh, in the Supreme Court. He compared the rule of the common law to the civil law rule, again, typically erudite uh, approach, and said that if he had his choice, he might prefer the rule of the civilians, meaning the civil law uh, uh, jurisprudence, but he, he recognized that he did not have his choice. Interesting. This might be backtracking a little bit, but does that go back to what we talked about earlier of him seeing the common law as a sort of more natural universal body of law than the civil law that existed at the time, which was man-made? I think the conventional view of a, th- of, of, of a theologian uh, would be that all those laws are attempts to apprehend the natural law. That is, nothing is really man-made. All the things that are wrong are man-made. The things that are right occur when, the, when, when a man has managed to apprehend uh, the rule that God, uh, that God laid down. Of course. Um, but nevertheless, there is more of a natural law flavor in, uh, in, in the common law, at least to my mind. Uh, certainly the hand of the human beings who crafted the laws is, is less in evidence. Absolutely. What, what I was saying about the uh, civil law And this might be misunderstanding sort of how the common law was received in the new United States, but was he in a position, Chancellor Kent, or I guess other judges of his time, to bring in other ideas from other sources of law? I think so. I don't, it's not really inconsistent to say that the true common law is perfect and formed and eternal, but when you're trying to figure out what it is, 
and there's nothing to tell you. There's no, no binding decision, no learned authority. Uh, your own sense of right and wrong is going to determine that. And I, I think that if, um, if the Chancellor v. Woods, if the Chancellor had not found him, found himself bound by the rule uh, which he found in the cases, I think he would have uh, adopted, he, he, he would have found that the common law principle was the same as the civil law. One last related question, which you sort of touched on a little bit before. I, ahead of this, tried to read at least some small portions of the commentaries on American law, or at least tables of contents that I could find online. And he talked a lot, in addition to common law and cases, about international law, the law of states, and obviously the Constitution. Did you think he saw those as departures from the common law, as new elements that were to be integrated into the body of American law that he based his own decisions on? I do not think so. I think he would have said that what the Constitution provided was a form, a structure for implementing the common law. And of course, for changing the law when it was necessary. That's what, a, that's what the legislatures and the Congress do. Constitutions are essentially means to an end. They don't tell you. The Constitution, the Constitution properly conceived, should not tell you when an action for trover of a cow will lie. It will tell you how you choose the person who is going to decide uh, that question. And to some degree, the procedures by which it's going to be decided, at least the minimal basic procedures like due process of law. Some questions on how the law developed after the commentaries on American law, after his own career and the impacts he had. I guess the first part of that is, you know, a lot of what we talked about so far has sort of been his view of one body of American law as opposed to the law of several states and a federal government. When exactly, if you know, did that start to change? And did people after him view his own work differently as that did start to change? Well, I think it was a long time. My sense is that the idea of judge-made law probably was novel from the late 19th century. I think he conceived it certainly more than a much earlier jurist would have as something judges made, something judges created. That idea, uh, which eventually became uh, more popular, in the, at least in the academy, I think was slow to catch on. To this day, there are some people who reject the idea that a, of, of a judge making up the law, even the common law. And that's hard, they, uh, it's hard to do that. I think uh, people are, are reluctant to do it. When I uh, was in law school, uh, I, I thought I was being taught that the real art of judging is to figure out how you want the case to come out and find some rationale for it. Yeah. That uh, attitude in its extreme form, I, I've reacted against. I mean, I thought it was great when I was a law student, but in my later years, I came to dislike it which is not to say that it doesn't describe accurately what judges do a million times, probably me too, because we're all human. And I even probably, I know damn well I did. I did it. I don't like the idea of it being sanctioned and encouraged. And I react against uh, uh, people who say, why did the court decide to rest the law on this, uh, uh, rest the decision on this point rather than that point? Couldn't they have reached the same result the other way? 
well, you know, I don't like the idea of this judge walking around with a big heavy result looking for something to rest it on. It's not that it's not true. Of course, intuitively, in almost every case, a judge thinks that one result is, there's an underlying right and there's an underlying wrong. The judge, he or she thinks that there is a right result and thinks of a way to get to it. But the right, to me, the right thing to do is once you've got that intuition, to try to figure out what the reasons are for that intuition, to find and see what really are the constituents of that gut feeling that got you there. And sometimes when you do that, you can see, you know, that gut feeling was wrong. And when I, when I reason it out, I should go the other way. You know, really question about, about you personally is obviously the New York courts were structured differently when Chancellor Kent sat on them. But you do, in a way, you were, you were when you were on the court, a sort of successor to Chancellor Kent. I, I was a successor to Cardozo, too. We, uh, yeah, we all, yes, we all, we all love that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Judith Kay, who was the chief, first chief judge under whom I served, used to say that the greatest thing about this job, one of the great things about this job, is you can say, as we said, and then quote Cardozo. <laughs> absolutely, yeah. So I, I was wondering, as someone who, who fought within the same jurisdiction, too, did you come to learn more about him while you were sitting on the Court of Appeals? And did your own perspective that you just described, did that in any way come from learning about him or judges that came after him on the court? I can't, I can't say, the honest truth is that Kent was not someone I knew much about until somebody asked me to write this article. It's part of the appeal of the article. And I'm not, and, and I'm by no means a scholar now, but I, I know a lot more than I used to. Being a judge does yeah, make you think differently. It makes you think about things and sort of learn things, learn things about what you think. That you, did, that you didn't know before. You pay a lot more attention to who these famous people were, uh, Cardozo, Holmes, Learned Hand, Brandeis. You, you want to find out how they did the job, the extent to which you should be imitating them or imitating someone else. I cannot honestly say that Chancellor Kent was part of that pantheon when I was a judge, but um, yeah, if I, if I ever become a judge again, which I would not think is very likely, I'll definitely put him on the list. That's great. Yeah, I wanted to thank you so much for taking the time to talk oh, to you. us. Uh, I've enjoyed it. I have too. I've, I've definitely learned a lot. Um, I hope our listeners have as well. And, you know, again, I, I just wanted to thank you. Um, I hope you and your family are staying safe and healthy with everything going on. Yeah, we're doing good. And, All right, thank you and good luck to you. Well, thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Historical Society of the New York Courts' podcast. You can find more information about the Society and read Judge Smith's article in Judicial Notice on the Society's website at history.nycourts.gov. Again, that's history.nycourts.gov. Thank you.